Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week I introduced the concept of self-presentation from social psychology. I want to argue, but probably not definitively, that self-presentation is connected to the formation of what we've called the ego-self in Buddhism, created through appropriation as me and mine, and also to the authentic self in psychoanalysis and popular culture. Although we navigate in our lives primarily a sociocultural world, as we discussed last week, we're still present as individual actors sometimes acting cooperatively and even selflessly for some greater good, and sometimes, for most of us probably more often, acting in our own self-interests. Self-interest involving greed and hatred has been with us evolutionarily since way before the apes, and it is still well ingrained in us. Apparently, ants and bees are selfless, but we are not entirely. We bring our self-interest into the improvisation we enact in a sociocultural matrix. In order to succeed in our social world, we require sophisticated social skills. Chief among these is to present oneself in a favorable light so that we are welcome to participate in cooperative endeavors in order to get our share of the fruits of such activities. This requires careful attention to how we present ourselves to others. Virtually all humans are highly sensitive to public opinion. They love praise and dread blame. In fact, self-presentation or image maintenance involves a swarm of evolutionary adaptations that enable us to win friends and influence people. The principle is to manipulate the assessments others might have of us to make us appear as valuable as possible in the social world, whether we are or not. This notion is not particularly abstruse, since we all know we do this kind of thing almost all the time, but some of the details are surprising. They're certainly unflattering to the human condition. We try to present ourselves differently in different contexts. When interviewing for a job, when working at a job, when we're talking to a neighbor, when we're engaged in mating behavior, that is, dating, sometimes our self-image is most important in very narrow contexts. For instance, a professor presents himself in a rather specific and expected way to students and colleagues that would be of little value to a cobbler or a tattoo artist. A monk has almost no comprehensible image at all in Western nations outside of a monastery. 
Self-presentation has been compared to having a press secretary or a whole team of press secretaries and a personal public relations staff. In general, we want to present a consistent picture of ourselves that fits into an identifiable role or personality type so that our behavior becomes predictable, then add some additional appeal and marketable features. Self-presentation involves a balance between how favorable an impression we want to make on others and how plausible the impression we are trying to make is. One of the surprising aspects of self-presentation is how deceitful we humans are. We habitually misrepresent our motives, our talents, our efforts, and our achievements, and in fact misrepresent them to ourselves as well. Our self-assessment tends to be highly biased, and we are quite adept at justifying ourselves with carefully crafted narratives. Cheating and freeloading are endemic, attempting to share in the rewards or receive more than one's share while failing to contribute one's share of the work or promising what one does not deliver. We have well-developed adaptations for detecting cheats and punishing cheats, but also well-developed adaptations for cheating. Honesty is often favored by natural selection for the species or at the group level, as a support for cooperation, but not at the individual level. We want those around us to be honest because working cooperatively, we achieve more individually, but we are tempted to cheat, to cook the books, to take a little off the top, because that way we achieve even more for ourselves at the expense of the group, as long as those around us are working cooperatively, and we don't get caught. As parents know, children experiment with what they can get away with, then learn not to get caught. In presenting ourselves socially, we inflate the importance of our job and our responsibility, becoming a housing maintenance engineer rather than a janitor, hide our conviction for petty theft. We try to look really interested in the dull, rambling story about an encounter with a moose if our interlocutor is a potential employer, client, or our date. We emphasize our fake high-value qualities like niceness, integrity, fairness, competence, intelligence, strength, health, propriety, or whatever qualities are fashionable in our culture. We make ourselves attractive, failing to mention the glass eye, toupee, absence of real teeth, and the wrinkly elderly person hidden under the layers of makeup. As we try to create a favorable impression, we tend to believe what we are presenting. Many social psychologists suggest that we are adapted to fool ourselves because our public impression is more convincing that way. Accordingly, personal biases about ourselves are quite pervasive. For instance, studies show that 94% of university faculty consider themselves to be above average teachers. 
98% rank themselves in the upper 25%. If subjects are presented with digitally morphed pictures of themselves, some of which make themselves look more attractive and some of which make themselves look less attractive, they will identify the more attractive as me significantly more often than the less attractive. Most people think of themselves as above average in, in driving ability, athletic ability, and morality. In fact, a recent study asked two groups of drivers to rate themselves in terms of ability. Group A was normal drivers, and Group B consisted of drivers who had each recently been ticketed for actually causing a collision. There was little difference in the consistency with which the drivers of either group self-evaluated themselves as above average. Here is the clincher. Studies show that virtually everybody claims to be less biased than the average person. We are the ones who always see things in their true light, who make the right decisions, have the correct views. Our personal long string of being right is truly astounding. Surprisingly, our attribution of important qualities to ourselves changes at the drop of a hat when convenient. When groups of men were asked to fill out a questionnaire about personal qualities, the percentage describing themselves as ambitious jumped from 9% to 60% simply by changing one contextual variable. Who else was present in the room? When only men were present, you got 9%. When half of those presented, were attractive young women, you got 60%. These men were apparently not tapping in to the deepest levels of their authentic selves to answer the questionnaire, but thinking strategically about self-presentation in the current context. Truly impressive is the human capacity for self-justification no matter what manner of unsavory or nonsensical activity we engage in, we are able to present our actions as rational, moral, and necessitated by the circumstances. Our behaviors are for the most part driven emotionally by urges. We do not understand these urges, but they tend to be genetic adaptations that have specific functions in terms of fitness, whose initial logic is not apparent. Yet we insist on justifying them in terms of current social norms. For instance, if a man is cheating on his wife, he is unlikely to understand or explain, I was driven by sexual urges that were designed by natural selection to maximize my genetic legacy. That is not socially acceptable. Instead, he will justify his actions in terms of some failure of his wife, her emotional distance, for instance. Some researchers think that language and the capacity for rational thought evolved primarily from the need to make excuses. For instance, if a desired goal 
of some endeavor is realized, we will generally manage to take credit for its achievement. If it's not realized, it's because of someone else's failure or circumstances beyond our control. Our whole worldview is often shaped as a justification for our actions and position in life. For instance, a person who enjoys material success on the basis of unscrupulous business practices is commonly a social Darwinian who sees the economy as a fierce competition for the survival of the fittest in line with natural evolution. And he is one of the fittest. Primarily, self-presentation is not a cooperative endeavor, but a means of achieving our own self-interests in a social world built on a cooperative, common ground, common language, and culture, which provides also a context in which individual competitive interests play out, much as apes strive to improve their individual stakes in a natural and thinly social context. Self-presentation can become quite deceptive, manipulative, and exploitive. Now, apes cooperate to some extent. They develop friendships, de-lice each other, read each other's intentions well enough to collaborate in hunting, in challenging the dominant chimp, or in fighting other tribes of chimps with a level of coordination akin to mob action, with little specialization. Self-presentation is largely unnecessary for chimps, since all the chimps in a group recognize and know each other well. Human societies are far more complex, in which individuals play specialized roles, tailor, baker, candlestick maker, and often have dealings with complete strangers, especially in urban environments. Under such conditions, to be invited or allowed to collaborate in some group effort and thereby share personally in the gains of the effort, one must present oneself as worthy, as having competence and integrity, commonly beyond one's actual qualities. But beware, others in the group will be on guard for cheats and freeloaders. This is such a common issue in human society that humans have actually evolved genetically specialized behavioral adaptations for successful self-presentation and at the same time for detecting cheating and freeloading among others. Foremost is a keen faculty for social self-monitoring, for social self-monitoring, for assessing what kind of impression others have of us. This assessment is called self-esteem. Self-esteem is there so that we know how to improve that impression to appear as a productive and fair collaborator, possibly but not exclusively by becoming productive and fair. Young children can be seen to partake in this when unobserved, they will often steal the things of other children, but when observed, they do so less often. Chimps simply do not care. By the time they're in preschool, children have become quite concerned about the evaluations of others. They have a level of self-esteem. 
we become so protective of the manner in which we present ourselves that we are very sensitive to insult or humiliation, often becoming vengeful toward anyone who threatens to reduce our self-esteem. Young men often become violent, particularly in public settings, where they can defend their honor. I would like to argue that this process of self-presentation is closely related to the development of the ego-self in Buddhism, which is constructed through appropriation of assets as me and mine, upadana, and culminates in becoming bhava, or establishing a personal footprint in the world. First, both are conditioned by craving, by bringing the apes' greed and hatred into a complex sociocultural world in search of personal advantage. Independent co-arising, we have craving gives rise to appropriation, gives rise to becoming. Second, it is the source of great pain and anxiety as we relentlessly protect what we have become and defend it from adverse circumstances or even casual insult. Third, the four categories of appropriation, sensual, self-view, behaviors and observances, and views, line up with what I've been describing here about self-presentation. I would also like to suggest that what has been called the authentic self is not something we discover through deep introspection of our intrinsic qualities as individuals. Rather, it is nothing more than something we construct from socially meaningful components in just this way in order to manage our public image to accomplish our personal goals. This explains why we need to develop and express our authentic self, because it helps us win friends and influence people. It also explains why what we truly are ends up being something that is valued in our present culture, like being a starving artist dedicated to our creative work, and how our fashion choices can possibly express our authentic self. Besides, if what we discover to be our authentic self is not a social construct, how would we know, given how helplessly confused we are by our own biases and self-deceptions? Individualism makes no sense as a worldview. A human self separate from society is impossible. A self is primarily a construct of society at every level. Moreover, the idea of a self oppressed by society, seems to have it backwards. In Buddhism, it's not society that oppresses the individual, but the presumption of a thing-self than an ego-self that underlies much of the corruption of society. Next week, I want to explore the social aspects of the Buddha's teachings, otherwise widely overlooked.